0: What we share here when we open the Word of God is not the least relevant, is the most relevant thing that we talk about all week long, is the most significant. Anytime we are opening up the Bible, anytime we're saying, Lord, tell us your word, Lord, give us the truth, help us understand, there's nothing more important. There's nothing more significant. So we're going to pick up right here in John 19, have some very serious things to talk about this morning. But in verse 31, it says the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. John writes verse 35, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. It's very emphatic. Let's pray. Lord, it's your word. We need your word. As we sang a moment ago, help us, Jesus, when we feel afraid, not to be afraid of the truth. Not to be afraid to speak the truth and not to be afraid, Lord, to stand on the truth of your word. Even in these days, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to look at the burial of the actual, physical, literal body of Jesus. But I also want to talk about the body of Christ. And as we go through this, I encourage you to keep in mind the body of Christ as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 he gave some as apostles some as prophets some as evangelists some pastors some teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ the body of Christ. Two weeks ago, I talked about deconstructionism. Perhaps you remember that if you were here, that conversation, that topic, deconstructionism, that the idea of deconstructionism is tearing down the body of Christ. Whereas, as we saw, the Bible talks about building up the body of Christ. Deconstructionism is tearing down your traditions. The Bible says, no, you you keep an eye on those traditions, biblical, sound, solid doctrinal positions, traditions that have been handed down over the ages. Deconstructionism says, rethink everything. The Bible says, rethink this. Focus on this, know the word of God. Don't tear down, build up. But here's the reality, and I wanna talk a little bit more about this today as we go through. We're gonna come back to the study in just a moment but I want you to think about something today, and that is that deconstructionism is only a tenet of a larger problem. It's only a philosophy of of a larger uh, position, of a larger theological liberalism that is doing great harm to the body of Christ, that is wounding and damaging the body of Jesus, that is the church, and it is called progressive Christianity. Now the thing that's so insidious about progressivism or progressive Christianity is there are people who are spouting progressive concepts and they don't even know it. They don't even realize that they are being progressive in their thinking or in their speaking. Progressive, now this is not progressive politics, by the way. Now there are definitely parallels between progressive theology or progressive Christianity and progressive politics. In fact, a lot of times progressive Christians tend to be progressive politically as well but we're not talking politics this morning we're talking about faith we're talking about your understanding of the word of god the scriptures what jesus did who jesus is and progressive christianity it's it's almost a misnomer in fact every time i say it i see big quotation marks around it progressive christianity because as i will show you i don't believe progressive christianity is christianity at all and if you are or consider yourself a progressive Christian, stick with me. Give, give me the next hour to explain where I'm at and see if you still disagree. Maybe you will. <laughs> progressive sounds so forward-thinking, you know, so enlightened. It sounds so intelligent and knowledgeable, you know, as opposed to those old stick-in-the-mud Christians, those traditionalists, those fundamentalists. Progressive would, would see that as old-school stuff You know, it would be the the church, and I've actually seen the church with a sign that says, not your grandmother's church. I kind of liked my grandmother's church. (laughs) I think my grandmother's church got some things right that some churches today need to go back and revisit and think through. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, what the Bible says is, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. Paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Remember, Jesus takes that exact phrase, rest for your souls, and he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find, and he quotes Jeremiah, rest for your souls. God says the rest is found on the ancient path. Jesus says, and I am your rest. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 15. My people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods. They have stumbled from their ways from the ancient paths to walk in bypaths, not on a highway. And, And by the way, and I left this part out, Jeremiah 6, 16, where he says, walk, ask for the ancient paths, walk where the good way is. He ends it by saying, but they said, we will not walk in it. That, my friends, is progressive Christianity. Where we say, Walk with the foundation of doctrinal truth. In the Bible, the progressive Christian says, I will not walk in it. I'd rather rethink it. I think there are some different ways of interpreting and understanding it. And so progressives encourage leaving the ancient paths for this new emotional intellectualism. And in truth, it is not a new idea at all. That's that's the thing about the arrogance. I I know I have brought this up before, but the arrogance of humanity is we really think that this generation is smarter than the last generation. We really think that we have evolved in our intellect and intelligence. And I've told you before, there were things they were doing architecturally in the first century we still can't do. We can't replicate. I'll tell you what, there were people in the days of Adam who were smarter than some of us. Just because we're down the line doesn't mean we're brighter. Just because we have some history that maybe we can build off of, if we will. But see, that's the other thing. History teaches us nothing. We don't look back at what has been learned again and again and again. No, we say, no, this generation can do it differently. We can take a concept, I'm going to get political, like socialism, and we can do it right. It's never worked. Yeah, but we we can do it that's progressive thinking right especially on the political stage we can do this new thing I know it's never worked before but but we are enlightened we are out ahead we're a new generation we need to understand it's the ancient paths that laid the course for us to walk on the foundation of Jesus Christ progressivism, as forward-thinking as it sounds, is not a new idea. In fact, it's the oldest idea in the book. Let me explain. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. 11 times in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you hear the phrase, God said. God said, God said, God said, 11 times. You Another four times here, he called, or God called, as in he called the, the light, the sun, you know? God said, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light. So over and over and over for two chapters, we hear God said, God said, God said, and in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the devil says, did God say? Did God say? 11 times he said. Yeah, 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 but, but, but did God say tells us the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the lord god had made and he said to the woman indeed has god said is that really what it means has he really addressed this that's progressivism that's progressive christianity that's your first deconstruction of the truth has god really said The progressive agenda, and again, deconstructionism is just one philosophy of the larger progressive agenda, but that agenda tears down faith in what God himself has said. Yes, God has said. Again and again, in his word, God has said. But the progressive comes along, tears it down, damages God's people, whether it be Israel or the body of Jesus, the church, which is why progressivism is so dangerous. I want to do something real quickly. We're going to get back to the word in just a second here, but I want to give you five ways to discern a progressive agenda. And part of the reason I decided to do this is we have a lot of people in and out of the Bridge Fellowship. We're a Navy town, right? So we've got a lot of people who come in, a family comes in, they're here two to three years, they're part of our fellowship. It's heartbreaking when they leave, but they go somewhere else. When you go somewhere else, how do you know How do you discern and discern quickly if this is a solid place to raise your kids to learn the teachings of the Word of God? How do you know if you go to another church or another place or even right here? How do you know as you listen to a pastor talk if he's really teaching sound biblical doctrine or if he's progressive? He may not even realize he's progressive. He may just be playing into culture. And thinking he's being all cool and relevant, but really he's spouting progressive ideas. Why, could, why do you say that, Rick? Because I did. Because I was that youth pastor. Early on in my ministry, it was all about the emotion. Man, if I could charge the kids up, it didn't really matter if it was solid biblical truth. I could you know, bend the word for my purposes. And I was never maliciously trying to avoid God's word, but I look back and realize there were things I taught that were in complete error. Progressive. I didn't know. And a lot of Christians don't know. You're sitting in a small group and someone starts to share something. How do you know if this is doctrinally sound, what they're sharing, versus what the Bible really says? So so let me just give you five things. These are just, and you can add to the list, I'm sure, but five practical ways to discern a progressive agenda If, if the teaching, however it's coming, is progressive. Number one, essential biblical doctrines are devalued essential biblical doctrines are devalued we're talking about moral values that are scripture like like the sanctity of human life the whole abortion versus life issue my friends for me that is not a political issue at all that is a biblical issue of biblical morality do we consider life to be highly valued by god or not what about marriage Between a man and a woman, which is how the Bible describes it, versus the new definition of marriage in our culture. What does the word say? What about things like gender and purity? More insidiously, essential biblical doctrines are devalued, like the doctrine of the sin nature, that the heart is desperately sick, Jeremiah 17 tells us. What about the doctrine of the virgin birth? See, a progressive would, would start to deny that, ah, the virgin birth, I mean, that's pretty out there. You know, we believe that that this guy Jesus was born, but the virgin birth is really, it's just, it's an allegory of purity. A progressive would say that. What about doctrines like redemption, resurrection? These things are being reimagined in progressive thinking for the culture today, heaven and hell, several years ago. And this has been going on, like I said, all the way back to, to Satan in the garden. But several years ago, Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. Rob Bell is a Christian progressive, or a progressive. Let's just drop off. The, I'm, I'm, being, I'm judging a little bit, and I'm going to this morning. I'm just warning you ahead of time. going to do some judging. Rob Bell wrote this book, Love Wins. And the whole thing is undermining the truth of a literal hell and a literal heaven. That hell really is more of a state of mind. An actual place, whereas the Bible describes it very literally as a place. Hell is, and maybe you've heard this, hell is just separation from God. Yes, hell is separation from God, but hell isn't hellish simply because you're separated from God, it's hellish because it's hell. And again, the Bible talks about that, and I don't have time to go into and try to answer every single one of these, I'm just giving you some sense that essential standard. Literal biblical doctrines are devalued in progressive Christianity. Number two, the authority of the Bible is diminished. You'll hear people say things like, I disagree with the Apostle Paul on this issue. Really? Do you understand that all Scripture is inspired by God? Do you understand that no prophecy of scripture is of one's own interpretation, but but given to men spoke from God? So if you're going to disagree with Paul, you're opening up a can of worms. You can disagree with anything in the Bible. And once you go down that road, throw away the book because you can make it say whatever you want. Well, I disagree with Paul. Well, I'm sorry you disagree, but Paul is teaching truth. Or, or, or the authority of the Bible is diminished. When, when someone says this phrase, I didn't even say this for, for service. When someone says, oh, I believe the Bible contains the word of God. What are they saying? Well, it's not all the word of God. But it's in there. You know, parts of it. I mean, Jonah, pff, come on, that's not legit. Daniel is a prophet. Even though, you know, Jesus legitimized both. In fact, Jesus legitimized the entirety of the scriptures. You know, but setting that aside, I, I don't buy it all. Well, that's, that is, you are diminishing the authority of the Bible, which will diminish your faith. Number three, objective truth, objective truth, that which is an absolute is displaced by personal experience. I know it says this, but I feel that. I feel this way. It, it, it is, it, it is the, the, the homosexual statement of I, I just don't think the Bible is true on this because I feel differently. It doesn't change what the word says. Now, we can be compassionate, we can talk about the issues, but what does the word say? If we don't start there, we are on shaky ground. Again, we can say or believe whatever we want. When objective truth is displaced by personal experience, that is what I think or what I feel outweighs what the Bible says. That's progressive Christianity. Number four. I'm just giving you five here. Biblical definitions are differently defined. What do you mean? Well, where I would say the Word of God is inspired by God, what I mean by that is that God gave the words exactly as He intended to the prophets who wrote them down as God spoke them. That the Bible is the Word of God. He inspired it, it's God breathed. That's what the word inspiration literally means. God breathed it men wrote it but in today's culture they would say no i believe the bible's inspired by god just like rick was inspired to write a love song for his wife so this is part of the problem in our even understanding and interpretation of scripture today as christians is we are so romanticized our culture is a romanticized culture we like allegory and metaphor we really as 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 a culture Just in 200 years, we have departed from the logic and reason of Western civilization to a much more emotional and feelings-based, feelings-centered mentality. And and as a a songwriter, you know, for better or for worse, myself, I know how that works. I know that you're looking for metaphors and pictures and you want to paint an idea, which makes writing worship songs very difficult because you don't just want to paint ideas, you want to worship God in truth. And there are a lot of songs that we sing where we say, you know, Jesus, save me from the sea. We sang one this morning, which is a good song, by the way. But we sang one this morning, and, and as we're standing, it's like, well, okay, not one of us today are in the sea and need rescue from the ocean today. See, that's the, the problem is that it, it's, a, it's an inspiration. It's an inspirational view of being in troubled times or difficulty and, and being brought out of that. We understand that, but when you start to apply that same mentality to the Bible, It undermines objective truth for personal experience. And biblical definition is differently defined like the word love. See, the word love is the premier word among progressive Christians. Everything is about love. What's happened is they've made love God instead of recognizing that God is love. Love is God. And love means you tolerate, put up with, deal with anything anybody else is doing. You just have to love them as they are. That's real love. No, that's not real love. Real love does not tolerate sin because sin separates from God. Real love cries out for justice like a father would cry out for justice if his son or daughter was harmed by somebody else. I would want justice. I would want that evildoer off the street. Why? Because of love. See, love is not just namby-pamby, good-feeling stuff. Love is grace and truth. Love is righteousness and mercy. And that's God. So God defines love. Love does not define God. But progressive Christians, they would say, well, I absolutely believe in love, but the love, quote-unquote, they believe in is translated differently. This, This is kind of a cultural issue right now because our kids use words differently than, than, we, than I use them. I'm always asking Naomi, okay, what does that mean? Explain that one to me. She's like, Dad, you know, because I'm, I'm so old school, right? <laughs> and and, and it's, it's one thing when it's just kind of our language doing it. It's another thing when our language is starting to change the definition of Scripture. Talked to a sister this morning. I, I'm sure she'd be okay with me telling you about this. Uh, but Ron and Linda Means back from Papua New Guinea, and the work that they did there, they were there six months. As so she came up, she said, I'm so glad you talked about this this morning because when we were in Papua New Guinea, this was all over the mission center. This whole progressive mentality. There was a lesbian serving in the mission and it was fine. And there was no distinction made. And, and she went on talking about this. And, and you know what? Progressivism is rampant in missions today. Why? Because missionaries are trying to take They're trying to translate the Bible into another culture, right? But the problem is so much of that translation isn't coming from the Bible, the Greek and the Hebrew. It's coming from American culture. We're translating American cultural Christianity to other cultures and bringing that progressive spirit with it. And I could really go off. I won't. Last one. need to get on here. Social justice dismisses the cross. So here are the five. Essential biblical doctrines are devalued. The authority of the Bible Bible is diminished. Objective truth is displaced by personal experience, how I feel. Biblical definitions are differently defined, same words, different meanings. And finally, social justice dismisses the cross. Social justice is the apex of progressive Christianity. Social justice, everything from environmentalism and climate change and all of that, to social justice, caring for the poor and the needy. And and you know what? Caring for the poor and the needy is very much a part of what we're called to as followers of Jesus, but it is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ died for sinners to save them from hell. The gospel is very clear. It's a very potent, powerful thing. The gospel message is redemption from sin for eternal life. And yes, that should impact how we treat other people, how we care about people in this world, the poor and the indigent and those who are suffering. We should have deep compassion because of Jesus' compassion for us. But that's not the highest thing in our faith. The highest thing is the gospel. Social justice dismisses the cross. So, so those five things are, are clear evidence of progressive thinking. Apply it to yourself. I mean, if you're sitting there going, oh man, I, I kind of feel that way. Well, you need to think about where you're coming from. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the progressive, the cross is actually simply an example and/or a metaphor of self-sacrifice. Rather than the redemptive act of a loving God to save people forever. You see the difference? One, yeah, Jesus died, so we should be self-sacrificial. The other, Jesus died to save my life. And his death provides for that. And without that death, I would be lost forever in hell. I would, you would too. It's only by trusting in Jesus that we have salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, this is why Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message. That is so vital to our faith. This is not academic, unless you're a progressive. Progressives share, listen to me, the same problematical theological position as the Sadducees, and I can prove it. The Sadducees in the first century, they came to Jesus, and they they used the Bible to try and prove their point, even though they didn't believe it. They said, in the resurrection, we have a question for you, Jesus, Torah law states that when a a, a man is married to a woman and and he dies and and they don't have any children, that his brother needs to marry her so that he can continue the man's name, the offspring. And that's true. That's in Torah law. It's called the Leverite law. Leverite meaning law of the brother or law of the the brother-in-law. So the brother-in-law law law said that if the first son died and and his wife was childless, that the, the second in line needed to become her husband to continue the family line and protect the land that God gave in Israel. There was a reason for it. If the second brother was married, of course he wouldn't marry her, then he'd go to the third brother. He married, well, if he married, then you go to the fourth brother. Well, the Sadducees, they come to Jesus and they go, okay, so brother number one dies, no kids. Then she marries brother number two. Tragically, brother number two dies too. And then brother number three, four, five, six, and seven. You know what they're doing? They're presenting a case that would never happen this is the kind of arguing that progressive do by the way political progressives argue the same way they argue things that are not the issue that would never happen they're red herring arguments but the Sadducees come along and say well, yeah, they all die so so in the resurrection who is she married to how <laughs> we got him And I'm not going to give you Jesus' full answer. I'm just going to give you part of it. And you can read the rest of it if you'd like to. Mark chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? That's the deal. Progressives today do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. That is replaced by this incredible self-focus, self-experience, self-awareness that has, you know, done away with the respect of the Scriptures and the power of God. That's where the Sadducees were at. Without faith in God's Word, as God breathed, and I mean God spoke, without faith in the power of God, and I mean via His Holy Spirit, I will say this unequivocally, one is not a Christian. One is not a believer, a follower of Jesus. You're a follower of something, but not of Jesus Christ, who declared this word will not pass away until all things are accomplished. Jesus was dead. He was dead, unequivocally, absolutely john wants to make sure you know and i know jesus was dead john's even going to give medical proof in just a minute here but matthew 27 verse 50 says jesus cried out again with a loud spirit a loud or loud voice and he yielded up his spirit mark 15 37 jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last Luke 23, 46, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Luke says, having said this, he breathed his last. And then John chapter 19, verse 30 says that he bowed his head after saying, it is finished, to tell die. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus was dead. Now, I know a lot of you are going, okay, Rick, we know this. <laughs> we get it. He died on the cross. I just got to make sure you're hearing it clearly. Just as Charles Dickens said at the very beginning of a Christmas story or a Christmas carol, and I, I've, I've quoted this before because I just love it. The story begins, Marley was dead to begin with. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story that I am going to relate. It's it's a great opening to a book. Marley was dead. You immediately, you're going, who was Marley and why did he die and what's that got to do with anything? And Dickens says, you've got to understand this or you're going to miss how wonderful this story is. You've got to understand Jesus was dead or you will miss how eternal this is and how wonderful his name is. Jesus was dead. And it's Jesus who remarkably said in Revelation 1:18, I was dead and I am alive forevermore Jesus was dead and so we his followers we read verse 30 of of John chapter 19 and we immediately expect the unexpected we immediately think well yeah but Jesus is going to rise in this story that's why I love the gospel of John chapter 20 comes right after chapter 19 He dies in 19, he raises in 20, hallelujah, the resurrection of Jesus, and so as a follower of Jesus, you go, well, of course, I expect Jesus to rise in this story. And as a follower of Jesus, just as the scriptures have said, we expect to rise and see him face to face because though he was dead, he's alive forevermore. It's a wonderful truth. Even though we haven't seen his face, yet we believe that we will see him because he who was dead, is now alive. First Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you'll love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, not in yourself, not in your experience, not in your own self-awareness, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Why? Why do we believe that? Because as Peter goes on to explain, the prophets prophesied of the grace that would come. In other words, The Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. Why do you believe the Bible, Rick? Well, I've told you over and over, prophecy proves it. History proves it. Archaeology proves it over and over and over. No book has been more maligned or more criticized and held up longer than the Bible. It doesn't even belong on a shelf with any other books. So we can really get into that. If you need to, please call me up. We'll, We'll get coffee and we'll talk about why is the Bible so absolutely foundationally true. Genesis to Revelation. I've been in this for a long time and and, and if if you're not certain about this just understand I have never seen anything close to the absolute truth of the scriptures and the Bible declares these things to be true that we, that Jesus rose so we expect him to in the story and that we will rise to see him because he forever lives. I absolutely believe that. Understanding that How does that affect our lives right now? And that's what I want to do in the rest of this chapter. How does that affect us now? What does this do to us as we look to him? I maintain to you all that the single greatest motivator of life and faith is the expectation of seeing Jesus again. I'm a broken record on this. I realize it the rapture of the church, the being called up to see Jesus, being with Jesus, Jesus coming at the end of the age. If you want the most practical way to live every day of your life right now, you expect to see him. And it will affect your day to day. It will change your morality, your mentality, even as the very crucifixion, death and burial of Jesus before we even get to the resurrection. So watch this, verse 31. Then the Jews because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So that day, that year, the the, the next day after the cross, so the cross was on Passover, the very next day was a high Shabbat, a high Sabbath. And they did not want the body of this cursed man hanging on the cross into the high Sabbath. They wanted it taken down right away. Let me explain something to you about how Sabbath works. <clears throat> on the Jewish calendar, today, Sunday in Israel, first day of the week in Israel, today, August 7th, 2022, on our calendar, is, it's the month of Av, and today is Tisha B'Av observed. Tisha B'Av observed. Tisha B'Av is the most serious, somber day in the calendar year for Jewish people next next to only Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Tisha B'Av is solemn. It is a fast day for observant Jews. They will fast, would be fasting all day today in observance of the destruction of both Jewish temples. 586 B.C. On Tisha B'Av, the temple was destroyed. 70 AD, on Tisha B'Av, the temple was destroyed the second time. Ever since then, and there's a whole list I don't have time to go into this morning, of atrocities against Israel and the Jewish people that all began or took place on Tisha B'Av. It's a, it's a remarkable day in Jewish history and a day of great mourning and sorrow. And so they remember it as a fast day, which is what they're doing right here, right now, today. Here's the problem. Tisha B'Av means the ninth of Av. But on the Jewish calendar, today is the tenth of Av. Why are they celebrating the ninth of Av on the tenth of Av? Because the ninth of Av yesterday was Shabbat, it was Sabbath. And Sabbath is higher in importance than even the memorial day of Tisha B'Av. Sabbath is a day of rest, it is not a day of fasting. You don't fast on the Sabbath, which is, I think, great news because that means I can rest and eat. It's one of my favorite things to do, kick off my shoes, bring the food, turn on the football, and just sit there and eat, you know? <laughs> Sabbath is not about fasting. Sabbath is about resting, finding your rest in Jesus. Shabbat takes precedence over mourning, over fasting, over sorrow. So yesterday was Shabbat. They, they couldn't observe Tishabah anytime. Tisha B'Av lands on Shabbat. They have to move it a day. So Shabbat is of great importance. Jesus said, come to me again, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is all about the rest. And with the rest comes the feasting and the joy. But... Tisha B'Av is a day of mourning. Well, note this. Occasionally, Jewish high holidays will coincide with the Sabbath day. When they do, that Sabbath becomes very important. And even more so here. In the case of the last Passover, so you've got the Passover day and the day of the crucifixion, and the very next day is Shabbat, but it's not only important because, well, it's during the Paschal week, the Passover week, but it's very important because it's called out in the Bible. Note this, speak to the sons of Israel, Leviticus 23, verse 10. And say to them, when you enter the land which I'm going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Shabbat, the priest will wave it. Well, listen, Passover was a Shabbat. Passover itself was was considered a Shabbat on the day after Passover every year. And that's the context of the Leviticus 23 passage. The day after Passover was a very special day. So they're saying it's High Shabbat. That day is High Shabbat. And because it was High Shabbat, it was doubly important to the Jews. And they came to Pilate and said, we got to get this cursed man off the cross because tomorrow is a high holy day for us. And we can't have a cursed guy hanging on the cross. Deuteronomy 21:22 calls a person hanging on a tree cursed listen to this if a man has committed sin worthy of death he is put to death and you hang him on a tree his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree but you shall surely bury him on the same day for he who is hanged is accursed of god or literally the cursed of god so that you do not defile the land which the lord your god gives you the romans could care less about torah law So the Jews are saying, we don't leave a guy hanging on a tree overnight, we have to take him down right away, and especially when you've got a high holy day and and Jesus is this cursed man on the tree, we got to get him down. Normally the Romans could care less about Jewish law because Roman crucifixion was all about shame and humiliation even after death. So I told you last week that in Roman crucifixion, they would leave the body up on the cross. He would hang there, the guy suffering, for three or four days before he finally gave way and died. But they didn't take the body down right away. Romans would leave the body up there to rot in the hot sun for their birds to come and peck and eat of the flesh until the body was pretty much just stripped in bones and bones and some flesh hanging there. Horrible thing to see. And they did it purposefully. They wanted the Jews to see, this is what your insurrections would bring. And so they would leave the body up there as long as possible. Listen to this. By asking that Jesus' legs be broken, which I'll explain more in a minute, so that the accursed would die quickly so he could be removed from the cross. They wanted his body taken down. By doing that, the very enemies of Christ accepted that Jesus was the accursed of God. So not only did the law declare it, not only now do the leaders agree and accept it, but the very wrath of God is appeased because Jesus became the cursed one on the cross. And even his enemies are acknowledging that by saying, "We got to take him down now because we can't leave an accursed man on a tree overnight." Jesus is the cursed of God. Galatians 3:13, Paul writes, "Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs." on a tree, Deuteronomy 21. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus was accursed. He became the cursed one of God. Our redemption was paid to tell us die. It's finished. And even his enemies acknowledged what happened on the cross. Note this, some things to jot down. The crucified Christ carried the curse. The crucified Christ carried the curse. Progressive Christians will downplay that message. The progressive Christian, so-called, subverts the weight of what Jesus actually did. He took the curse of all our sin, the curse of the wrath of God. He became the cursed one of God. And yet a progressive would say that the cross is just allegorical for self-sacrifice. They miss the spiritual weight of what Jesus actually did, of what took place there, that even his enemies acknowledged, Torah law acknowledged, and the Lord God himself acknowledged, even Jesus did when he said, it is finished. He's talking about the curse is paid, it's done, and he died. Those progressives who think that the cross is just allegorical, guess what? The scars will prove them wrong. The scars will prove them wrong. But watch this, John's gospel is the only one that goes on to point out this bone-shattering truth. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, underscore that, already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 32 talks about, the word in latin is crurifragium. Crurifragium is they actually have a word for it it's amazing it means smashing the lower leg bones usually the tibia smashing the shin bones that's crurifragium. they did it intentionally to bring on death quickly for a man hanging on a cross they didn't just come whack the legs they went to the lower half bam, with, usually with some blunt force stick or, 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 or weight, they would shatter, literally shatter the leg bones. I, I mentioned last week that we have an archeological find of one crucified man from the first century. We just have one that, where we actually see evidence that this man died of crucifixion. And in this, it was 1968 that these bones were discovered and the shin bones are shattered, which tells us it couldn't have been Jesus. You know anyone who says, hey, they're the bones of a crucified man. Could this maybe be Jesus? No, because the shin bones are shattered and the legs of Jesus were not broken. They would shatter them. It it caused intense. I mean, you think think about the pain they're already in as they're hanging on the cross, the nails through the the hands or, or, or through the wrist right there, and the nails through the feet, and they're hanging there and they can barely breathe, and the pain and the anguish that they're in, and then someone comes along and breaks the shin bones. And what this would do was cause immediate, intense pain, obviously, and then the person would go into shock, the chest and the abdomen would seize up, and the victim would literally die of suffocation in minutes. They may have been hanging three or four days, still surviving somehow, you break the shin bones and they're done. And they would die very quickly. But Jesus didn't die of suffocation, did he? Continuing on, they saw coming to Jesus, he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Verse 34 And immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill listen to me, to fulfill the scripture. Here's prophecy fulfilled not a bone of him shall be broken. Speaking of the Passover lamb, Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 says it's to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Don't break the bone of the Passover lamb. Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us and his bones were not broken. Uh, furthermore numbers chapter 9 verse 12 they shall leave none of it until morning nor break a bone of it according to all the statute of the passover that they shall observe it so the picture there and a progressive would say well see that's just a metaphor that's just an allegory jesus wasn't an actual lamb you know he was a man and so the lamb was allegorical for jesus and i'll give him that but the breaking of the bones or the fact that jesus bones were not broken is not allegorical In fact, Psalm 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Who in all of history is the only one that we could call the righteous? It's Jesus. No one else is completely righteous until covered by the blood of Jesus. But it says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Fulfilled prophecy. So as they come to Jesus, they see he's already dead and, oh, don't break the bones. So what did they do? Soldier takes a spear and drives it into his side. John testifies blood and water just comes spurting out. Number two, if you're taking notes here, the crucified Christ not only carried the curse, he confirms the truth. This is so vital to our faith. The crucified Christ confirms the truth. Medically speaking, how do we know that Jesus was really dead? Because that's something else that people have tried to, all the way back to the first century, tried to say, well, maybe he didn't really die. He just swooned. Okay, we have evidence that he really died. Blood and water came rushing out when they drove the spear into him. You know what medicine tells us? That blood and water coming out of a wound like that tells us one thing, he died of a ruptured heart his heart ruptured. That's the only way that the blood and water would flow together in that way. So we know Jesus was dead. This is why John is so emphatic. He who has seen and testified and his testimony is true. You gotta get this because I want you to believe, John is saying, that Jesus absolutely, physically died. He didn't just appear to die, he actually died. And so blood and water reveals that death the death by a burst heart which is something that nobody can live through you got to have your heart or a heart or somebody's heart you got to have the pumping of the blood to survive and john by the inspiration of the holy spirit says this listen to this first john chapter 5 verse 6 he says this is the one who came by water and blood not in water only but in the water and in the blood And then he says, it is the Spirit who testifies, talking about the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit is the truth. Then he says, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement, and you read that and go, that's got to be metaphorical. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, that's that's just some big old allegorical picture that John's, no, it's absolutely literal. This is the one, John says, who came by the water and the blood. Jesus was born an infant with all the fluids of birth, water and blood. Water and blood. Young husbands, if you are yet to be there with your wife giving birth, that's part of the deal. (laughs) Prepare yourselves now. I've told you that was the toughest day of my life. (laughs) Sitting over there in the corner eating my little tuna fish sandwich, you know, and Cheryl looks across the room and she can smell the tuna and she's in the throes of the birth pangs and I'm just trying to have my sandwich. I'm trying to keep my strength up, you know, to be there for her. She looks over me. I kid you not, her eyes were flames of fire. And she said, do you have to eat? She sounded like Vecna. Do you have to eat that here? Take my little sandwich out into the hallway. It was a hard day, I'm telling you. Jesus was born of the fluids of birth, blood and water. Jesus died of the fluids of death, blood and water. His life began that way. His life ended that way. John says the Spirit testifies. The Spirit and the blood and the water are in agreement. The Holy Spirit testifies. John's getting at something here. Don't miss this. You have to understand, John says, Jesus was born into this world. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus died a physical death. That physical body was buried in the grave and that physical body raised again in resurrection, just like your physical body will be raised glorious. You need to get that because there are those who deny that even today. It's all just a picture. Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus our Lord. John was so concerned about this because there was an early progressivism going on in the first century. It was called Gnosticism. If you know anything about it, the Gnostics, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, to know. They had the knowing, they had the special knowledge, they were enlightened. They were intellectuals. They understood something that those old school Christians, granted the church had only been around a year or two, but those old school Christians <laughs> didn't understand. You old Jewish Christian traditionalists, we have the Gnosis. So Gnosticism was like progressivism. It was the, it was the, it was the, the philosophy, but the, a tenet of Gnosticism is a thing called, you don't have to remember this, but called Docetism docetism was to gnosticism what deconstructionism is to progressivism are you with me on that so you've got progressives and one of their philosophies is deconstruction you have gnostics and one of their philosophies was docetism well what does that mean docetism is the belief that jesus was never physical that he was only ever a spirit he resembled a physical person but he was never really a physical man He didn't really die a physical death. He wasn't raised with a physical body. No, Docetism says it was all metaphysical, celestial in substance, and therefore not really like us. He looked like us, but he wasn't really like us. He was different. So he really can't fully understand you because you're in flesh. He never was. That's what Docetism proclaimed. That's why John is being so heavy on this. He's so adamant. This is the truth. He came, the word became flesh. That word flesh, John 1:14. he starts out the gospel with it to lay the foundation. The word flesh, sarx, is skin and bone. I mean, it's the most base Greek word for flesh. He became flesh. The word, the logos became flesh and lived among us. John's saying this is not, we're not playing games here. God isn't pretentious Oh, I'm going to come and look like them and and pretend to be one of them and pretend to die and pretend to raise and then, you know, it'll it'll all just kind of be fun. we just do this game. That's not what happened. John is saying, no, this was actual, literal, physical. He was physically born, physically lived, physically died, and physically resurrected. But many progressives today actually say this, believe that metaphor and allegory surpasses truth. That taking scripture metaphorically is more important than taking it literally. That's docetism. It's old Gnosticism. It's indeed did God say? Did he really? This is not a new enlightenment. This is an age old lie of the devil. Progressive Christianity is not Christianity. Now some would say, Rick, you are getting pretty judgmental of progressive Christians. Are you, you're calling them non-Christians. You're calling them sinners. You're calling them non-believers. Let me just answer that real quickly. Only God can judge the heart. I can't judge the heart. So if someone is, is speaking or teaching progressive ideology, I can't judge whether or not they realize it or intend that. I can't judge whether or not they really trust in and believe in Jesus. If they really trust and believe in Jesus, they could just be wrong on theology, but they love the Lord. I'm not going to judge that. But what I can judge is what is spoken. And I can tell you this, Jesus Christ did not burst his heart for futile philosophy. And he didn't die on the cross for self-indulgent ideologies to make us feel good in this world. He didn't take the spear for ear-tickling mysticism no no his heart burst for real redemption actual salvation the crucified christ carried the curse the crucified christ confirms the truth that he actually died in the flesh for you for me so that we could be saved forever with him verse 37 and again another scripture says they shall look on him whom they have pierced this is big this is a big deal. John quotes this right here to specify Zechariah's prophecy. Okay, that is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. You might note that in your Bibles or circle it in your, in your little liner notes if you have a cross-reference there. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. That's what John is quoting in verse 37. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. John quotes it right here to say that the soldier's sword... Is this piercing? Not the nails. They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Now, Psalm 22 makes it very clear. They have pierced my hands and my feet. So the psalm prophecy is directly speaking about him being nailed up to the cross. The Zechariah prophecy, at least according to John, by the Holy Spirit, the Zechariah prophecy means this is when they thrust the spear into his side. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. John quotes it in that context. Why is that important? Because it was the spear in his side, not the nails in his hands and feet. It was the spear in his side that absolutely unequivocally proclaimed his death. See, they nailed him to the cross, but he was still alive. When the nails went in and they lifted him up and dropped it into that post hole, he was alive. As Jake told us at, at, at communion, he still spoke seven different things that we have recorded in Scripture. Seven things from the cross alive in those six hours. Pierced but alive. Now he's pierced to be proven dead. The word pierced in the Hebrew from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. That word is dacharu, and it translates thrusted through. He was thrusted through. They would see him who they had thrusted through. The Greek equivalent word that that John uses right here is exekentesin, not easy to say, and it means dug through. So this is very specifically talking about the spear going in. This particular prophecy is speaking of the spear. Here it is, Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they will look on me whom they have pierced and will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And don't miss how powerful that language is. They will look on him they will look on me, he says, and mourn for him. And he's talking about the same person. God says they will look on me and they will mourn for him. They will look on me, God, and they will mourn for him, Jesus. Same one, same person. But when he says this, they will look on me whom they have pierced. This is number three, if you're note taking. The pierced Christ convicts the heart. Which is why the crucifixion is so fundamental to our faith. The pierced Christ convicts the heart. Zechariah takes this, this piercing of the, of the sword prophetically. He's 750 years out from the cross. And he says, this is going to happen. They will look on me whom they have pierced. And John says, here it is. Here it is. Don't miss this. The sword goes in, they look on him who was pierced, and there were inhabitants of the house of David and inhabitants of Jerusalem there at the cross that day who mourned and wept when they saw that happen. No doubt John had tears pouring down his face as he saw the sword go in, because when it went in and the blood and water came out, there was no question, he's gone. He's dead. And it would have pierced their hearts. The pierced Christ convicts the heart. Now, some of you might say, wait, Rick, (laughs) hold on. Haven't you taught Zechariah 12 as an end times prophecy? Not a cross prophecy as John states it here, but an end times prophecy. And here's the thing, it's double-edged. It's both. It's both. It happened To a degree at Calvary, as John points out, it will happen in full at His coming. How can you say that? Because if you read all of Zechariah chapter 12, you recognize the context is in the coming of Christ at the end. It is a second coming context when they will look on Him whom they have pierced. So at the cross, there were those there, Mary and Salome and friends and, and John, there were those there who looked on Him whom they had pierced and mourned for Him. And wept over him. But there will be a people of Israel here at the end. When Jesus comes back again, they will see him coming on the clouds. They will see him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn and they will weep for him. But what I said to you here is the pierced Christ convicts the heart. Listen to me. And I hope everyone hears this, whether you consider yourself a believer, a progressive, any of that or not. The non-believing world, when they see Christ coming, will mourn and weep bitterly. Which makes what we're talking about right now the most important thing we're going to hear all week. It, It means that our Christian faith, listen to me, our Christian faith is the most important thing in your life. Nothing else comes close to this. There are those who are going to see Jesus coming and they're going to mourn and weep because they will recognize this is the Jesus who they rejected. And they will mourn and they will weep in desperation and in despair and in horror at that realization. But there are also those who receive, as Zachariah says, they receive the spirit of grace and supplication, which is prayer. And they will mourn and weep with contrite prayerful hearts, they will look upon Jesus and recognize him as Savior. This is, the, this is the all Israel who is saved that Paul talks about in Romans 11 for you Bible students. This is Israel looking upon him and, and, and in faith seeing him as Messiah coming to rescue them and they will mourn and weep but it will be a repentant mourning, a weeping over Jesus as their Messiah and it's the pierced Jesus that does this. And what I'm saying to you here is that no one will be unaffected. Everyone, will, when they see Jesus, will mourn and weep, either mourning and weeping in repentance and sorrow over that or mourning and weeping because they're in despair recognizing it's over. Everybody will be affected by the crucified Jesus, the pierced Christ. He convicts the heart. So the prophecy of Zechariah was for then and is for then, past and future. But the effect, listen to me, the effect is now that the crucified Christ absolutely convicts the heart, which is why people don't want to talk to you about Jesus if they're not believers. It's why that topic gets pushed away. Try this with a family member who is uh, opposed to Jesus. Talk to them about something that you love to do. Talk to them about your favorite video games and they'll talk to you all day long, no problem. But bring up Jesus and immediately the wall goes up. Why? Because the pierced Christ convicts the heart. It's the crucifixion that does that. Oswald Chambers put it this way. He said, heaven is interested in the cross. Hell is terrified of the cross. It's human beings that for the most part ignore its meaning. Progressive Christianity ignores the meaning of the cross. Let me ask you this morning, what does the pierced Jesus do to you? What does the crucifixion of Jesus do? You know, when we take communion together, it's not coming up here all sorrowful and somber and feeling bad that he was so beat up physically. Yeah, that's part of the deal. Yes, the physical was horrible, and we've described it, but, but rec- do you recognize, does it grab hold of your heart? Do you recognize Jesus did this to save your life? Do you recognize that you will be in heaven forever with Jesus because of what He did, because of what He took on Himself, because of the spiritual redemption and purification that took place by His blood at the cross? Do you see that? Do you feel that? And I think we got to feel this. 32 years earlier, Mary and Joseph brought little baby Jesus, eight days old, up to the temple, as was the practice brought him up to the temple to present him before God. And and when they got up there, there were two people, interesting people, prophets, both of them, Uh, a woman named Anna, who had been there, older Anna, been there a long, long time, a prophetess, and then Shimon, an old man who the Bible says was looking for the consolation of Israel. Day and night he was there at the temple just waiting, looking for, praying that he might be able to see Messiah before he died. And Luke chapter 2, verse 34, old Shimon comes up to Mary and Joseph, and he says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Truly, a sword pierced Mary's soul when she watched Jesus on the cross as the sword went into his side. Truly, The piercing of Jesus, it it, it pierces the thoughts of many, it reveals the thoughts of our hearts. What we actually believe versus what we say we believe. The piercing of Jesus convicts the heart. Read on, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus who had first come to him by night also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus. They bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. They didn't embalm him. You know, the Romans and the Egyptians, they would, they would go through a kind of a gross process, but they literally, literally would gut the body of the, of the organs and the internals, you know, and take it all out. And they would reach up literally through the nostril and pull out the brains of the dead body. And then that empty shell, they would fill with a mixture of sawdust and other things, and, and they would create this, this corpse, that, which is why we still have mummies today, right? That's not what the Jewish people did. They took the body of of the person who had died, they did nothing to the internal organs, they took strips of linen, and they would soak these strips of linen in this myrrh aloe solution, this very sweet-smelling solution, and then they would wrap the body from head to toe, laying these strips one after another over the body. It was a very, very tender process, very intimate process. It's something that we have lost in American culture In fact, even in this country, you go back 200 years when somebody died, the body of the person who died first would be set out for the viewing and then the family would wash the body head to toe, would dress the body in a robe or in clothing suited for burial and would prepare the, the family (laughs) would prepare the body, which had the effect of us understanding that death was a part of life. And recognizing, especially by faith in Jesus, that this is the shell that is here, but one day this physical body is going to be raised eternal. Listen, when Joseph and, and Nicodemus wrapped the body, this was very personal. This was very intimate. And I love these guys for it. Joseph and Nicodemus. I don't even know them, I haven't met them. But I look forward to it because of what they did here, and John is the only one who really lays it out, tells us, we know that Joseph of Arimathea gave up his tomb from the other Gospels. We don't know he was this involved in the wrapping of the body of Jesus. By the way, the strips of linen, there's another word for that, um, swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes. Same thing he was wrapped in as an infant. He was now wrapped in as he died. And those strips would be wrapped around well, Joseph, Joseph and Nicodemus did it. What do we know about them? We know that Joseph was a rich man. Matthew 27, 57. He was a rich man and it was his unused brand new tomb that they would lay Jesus in. So Matthew tells us that. That's interesting because Isaiah 53 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Well, how do you fulfill that prophecy? You hang someone on the cross and automatically he is assigned to be thrown into a pauper's grave when he's all rotted on the cross. They pull him down and throw him all into a pit and bury it up and they're done. That's how Jesus should have been buried, but instead in fulfillment of the prophecy he was with a rich man. He was put in the tomb of a wealthy man. Completely fulfilling Isaiah 53 verse 9. We know that Joseph of Arimathea also was a disciple of Jesus, but John adds (laughs) that he was a secret one for fear of the Jews. Well, why is that? Well, we also know Mark 15, 43 tells us that he was a prominent member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. That's amazing. Best of all, we're also told by Mark that he was looking for the kingdom of God. You know what that tells you? That tells you that even in traditional religion, there are those who are seeking after God. (laughs) That even with, among the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and that Jewish ruling council, there were men there even who were witnessing the, 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 the calling for and the, and the false accusations against Jesus. They were there and they were watching this but they were believing already in who he is and who he was and they're watching it take place and after the fact, it's hitting home. Joseph of Arimathea started to understand this, this is more, I, I, I missed it. This is him. What can I do? And he goes and he asks for the body. And that, man, that was a bold thing for him to go do as a member of the Sanhedrin. That would get back to the other guys. That could cost him everything. Same with Nicodemus. Only John names Nicodemus, but he was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. We saw him back in John chapter 3 when he comes secretly to Jesus at night and goes, listen, I've got I to find out who you are. Right? And then we see Nicodemus again in John chapter 7. And it's really interesting because there, John chapter 7 long about verse 50, he stands up for Jesus. Our law doesn't allow for someone to be condemned unless they can speak for themselves, right? And then all the rest of the Sanhedrin jumps on Nicodemus. Okay, all right. So you've got Joe and you've got Nick. And these two men gather together. Because why? Because the pierced Savior convicts the heart. And these two guys, I'm convinced, we will know them in heaven. We will see them as brothers of Christ because, listen to me, following the cross, following the piercing of Jesus, faith came out. Faith was expressed. Suddenly, the body of Jesus was more important than their reputations. Suddenly, the body of our Lord mattered more to them than their professional lives. Suddenly, that was A number one for these two men it changed their lives forever because as Paul said, First 1 Corinthians 1.18, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 41, now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, that's a little hint as to the location, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And I read that last part of John 19 and what what really affects me by it, Joseph and Nick and their tender care as they swaddled the dead body of Jesus in the myrrhs and aloes that created this, this protective shell around the body. And I look at that and the question I come back to over and over is do I show such tenderness the body of Christ do we care for the body like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea let me wrap this up listen to Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 he is also speaking of Jesus the head of the body the church He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. See, it's not about your philosophy or your self awareness or what you think or feel. It is that he would have first place in everything. Does he? I'm asking myself this Jesus, do you have first place in everything in my life? Do you come first? Or there are other things that are vying for that position? Jesus is first. Jesus matters more than anything else, anyone else. And so he is the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, whether things on earth or in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated, and hostile in mind and in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach if indeed, listen, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established, steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, calls us out. It compels us to put Christ first and his body second. And everything else comes later. The body of Jesus, the church. Do we love his church with that kind of love and compassion and grace. First John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 3.18, uh, 3, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Don't just say it, do it, show it. Do I care for the body of Jesus with the same kind of tenderness? As Joseph and Nicodemus. That is why this morning I'm denouncing progressivism as heresy. Because I love the body. And because the body has an infection. And the infection is the undermining of biblical truth progressive liberalism and its deconstructionist damage these are false doctrines that are doing incredible harm to the church and when the body of christ is being harmed internally like that how in the world are we going to be strong enough to bring the gospel to the world we've got to stand on what's true and so again number four the crucified christ compels us to care for the body You may never preach a sermon on this. Even as I teach this morning, I I am fully aware that, you know, we're just a little church on North Whidbey Island, right? And what impact really can we have? So we should just do our own thing and ignore these other issues and things like progressivism and deconstructionism and all these weird isms. Just leave those alone and just, let's just do our own thing and not worry about it. I love the body. If we love the body, we have to speak the truth and we have to speak with compassion. Compassion. I speak with love hoping that someone out there maybe at some point who has a progressive bent will recognize, oh man, I am wandering from truth. This is reality, not this. So you may never, I don't know, preach a sermon like this and and, and even me at times, I go, wow, I I told Les this morning, I think I shared this first service too, that it feels a little weird to talk about some of these issues because like, really? What impact am I going to have? And yet... How many of you are Navy? How many of you will hear this now and when you go to the next place you'll take truth with you and it's not my truth, it is the truth that we seek to understand and live by. You may never debate with someone who's a progressive. Maybe you haven't even heard the word before this morning. You may never get into a conversation with someone who has a liberal theology that undermines all these things. You may never face off with someone who has a heretical bent. However, however, our tender care for the body of Christ, our love for one another as believers, our faithfulness to the inerrant word of God, and our vigilant stand for the truth of the gospel message of the cross to the very end may make all the difference in the world for the church or maybe for that one person who needs to be saved. So we stand on the word of truth. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, I pray for the day when all isms vanish. I long for the day when there is only Christ. I long for the coming kingdom when the truth will be pervasive, when the government will run on righteousness, when sin will be openly and honestly known and seen for what it is and rejected wholeheartedly when there will be the perfect representation of government in the world by Jesus. Lord, you you yourself, I long for the day even beyond that when we are just in your presence and, and we don't have to push back against anything. We can just stand in your presence and know the truth having been set free by it. But Lord, that's not today. And today we live in a fallen world, in a broken world, in a sorrowful world. We live in a world of of sinners, and we are all here having been that. Every believer here, Lord, you know where we came from. Such were some of us, but we were washed. (laughs) We were changed, and it's the cross that did it. Oh, Lord Jesus It's the cross. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your sacrifice, for the massive eternal weight of that truth. And I pray that our faith would be grounded first on Jesus and the cross, secondly on all the words of scripture, the truth that we can lean on and trust and know. And Father, I pray if there's anyone among us this morning who has not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, That prayer would be prayed today, and that life would be given to you by full-hearted trust today. In Jesus' name, amen.